This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sandbox Time Travel. Apicius. Storytelling with Places. And Taco Bell Elliptony. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can... Can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or Curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. Welcome back to another all-request episode, which is also an all-hut episode. The huts lined up in serried ranks there on, I don't know, is it a meadow? Is it a darkling plain? Could be both. Could be neither. Who can say? But in the first hut, as we duck through it, we find our feet sitting on comfortable shag carpet, a table with chairs around it. We hear the thump of miniatures, the rattling of dice, the crunch of Doritos, and we see the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcoming us into the gaming hut where Tom Bagatelle, beloved Patreon backer Tom Bagatelle, asks us, what advice would we give for running a sandbox time travel game? Uh, which I take to mean a time travel game with no overarching narrative except, hey, you lucky sons of guns, you've got a time machine. Go nuts. Robin, what's your advice for running a sandbox time travel? When you wrote a time travel game, you did not sandbox it. You no. gave them a very few places to go. Yes, it's uh, it's actually uh, Feng Shui is has uh, time travel elements only insofar as you go to different periods that lots of Hong Kong action movies are set in and fight people there. It treats uh, time periods as places, basically. Right. So first of all, the question is, uh, we have to assume, for the purposes of this question, that your players will be good at sandbox gaming, uh, meaning that Ken's players uh, will be probably more our exemplars. Uh, with my players, I would uh, more inclined to give them a premise. The usual premise, of course, of a time travel game is that you are rectifying errors in the time stream, as in Time Watch or as in uh, Legends of Tomorrow, the uh, loopy DC uh, comic show on the, on the CW. Uh, but for this, I guess the first thing we do is we we, we either have a, a prep session where we get together on our player Slack channel and say, okay, in the first episode, 
you are going to get a time machine. And so tell me about your characters and, and decide ahead of time what you will do when you get a time machine, because that's the entire premise of this. And I might also be tempted to do a sort of a macroscope thing with the rules of time travel and have them decide uh, what sort of time travel operates in their uh, game, because that, of course, can be everything from all of history is up for grabs and constantly changing, and you step on a butterfly, and all of a sudden Pee Wee Herman is president of America when you come back, or it can be, you know, history is mostly fixed. You can't really change anything. You can just go to visit historical events and have, you know, maybe you can bring a souvenir back, but that's that's about the extent of the, the change. And then, you know, in between there, of course, is a, a wealth of questions that you could uh, hammer out. Uh, Ken, would you be uh, also inclined to collaborate with your players on the rules of time travel, or is there a particular... Uh, set of rules of time travel that works best for sandboxing. There is sort of a best practices rules of time travel, which is that time is what they call plastic, but with high inertia. You can change it, but you have to either judo it just right at exactly the right moment in time, or you have to make a gigantic change, like drop an atom bomb on the Battle of Waterloo or something. You can't just show up the Battle of Waterloo and save Napoleon's empire, even if you win the Battle of Waterloo for him, because turns out historical forces mean that he'll overextend himself. He'll try to march into Netherlands and get cut off by uh, Blucher and um, uh, stopped by the Prince of Orange, uh, you know, at uh, the at the Rhine or whatever it is. Something else will happen that will ruin Napoleon's life because Napoleon is just a headstrong guy with no more sense of his own uh, capabilities after the hundred days. So that is just the sort of thing. And you have to sort of work it out so that you're very carefully planned so that when the battle of Waterloo goes the other way, the allies are actually exhausted. They don't try and stop him. And Napoleon is able to uh, force a peace at the Rhine river and continue the empire. But th even then he might do so and then die in 1820 and there's a bourbon restoration and then time sort of mostly went back except for five years when it didn't. So the changes will damp out unless you really make big ones. And that's, uh, I think the way that you get most of the fun out of a time travel game, because going to a bunch of alternate timelines that don't make any sense or have give you no uh, place is some of the fun, but it's not all of the fun. Uh, the other thing that I generally like to introduce into a time travel game is that there are parallel histories, but they exist on parallel timelines. So if you want to go to the land where the Romans always uh, never fell, that's its own timeline. It's not our timeline shifted. And so you can go between Roman world and America world and hated British world and Nazi world and whatever else, but those are separate worlds. And so you get the fun of doing parallel histories without worrying too overly much about time travel, even though maybe the Roman world, the hated British world and the Nazi world are all trying to undermine America world and change its history. So you still get to stop evil time infiltrators. Uh, another thing during that zero session where you're setting out the rules of time travel or making them up. One of the fun things about a sandbox time travel game is you can play people from all through history. So rather than saying you're all 21st century dudes or people who know a elderly British guy or whatever it is, you are 
potentially anyone from time. And that could be great fun. And people might play a dinosaur or they might play again, like in time watch, they might play a dinosaur or a Neanderthal who has telepathy, or they might play. Uh, I remember in one game that I was a player, not a GM. I played the comp to censure man and was very cagey about what my native time was and what I could do <laughs> and had a lot of unspent points on my character sheet. So, you know, when they were talking to us in ancient Assyrian, I could say, Oh, I speak ancient Assyrian. Hey guys, how's it going? It's me. Um, uh, Durapulimus. You remember me? And they were like, Oh yeah, because I, had a really high, you know, fast talk. And so they would, you know, go along with whatever I said. And so it annoyed the living crap out of everyone, which is kind of the ideal thing to be. <laughs> yeah, the, the ideal Ken character. When you're Saint Germain, certainly. Yes. But that's a great deal of fun because players get to sort of bite down on one nugget of history that they're really fond of. And if you get a player who's a big fan of Billy the Kid or a big fan of Marie Curie or whoever, they can play that character and use their uh, special powers of, uh, for time. And that's uh, and that's great fun. And you'd hate to leave that out of the fun of a sandbox time machine game now uh the next question then that the players would have to decide and that you would then react to is what are we doing in time and uh we've already mentioned the obvious you are rectifying errors in the time stream uh, but you could also have you are uh collecting stuff for a museum so the whole point of, of this is that uh you know you're trying to gather together the lost and destroyed treasures of art and cultural history so of course you're trying to go and get snag yourself a copy of uh, Aristotle's book on comedy or, you know, the, a lost uh, Da Vinci or, you know, the, the list is as long as the number of episodes you want to run of treasures that you can go and, and rescue for the uh, cultural patrimony of uh, uh, species kind at the, uh, at the center of the universe. And so that can give you a, um, a sort of a, an episodic structure where you're after the, the MacGuffin of the week. Uh, you could also do that with people that your uh, goal is to uh, you have a set of clones that you can just sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're blank clones until you activate them. So your goal is to uh, rescue Joan of Arc from the flames be just last minute. And then you throw the uh, or the, rescue the, Marilyn Monroe from the Kennedys. Yeah. So you, you throw the android uh, Joan of Arc, who very happily goes off to the uh, to the pyre. And then you take the real Joan of Arc back to the, the Parliament of History and uh, the people that you rescue can then be your core of replacement characters if your characters get uh, knocked off or uh, fall in love and decide to stay behind in third century Greece. Uh, which is going to happen. Third century Greece is full of uh, exciting people, all of them lovely. Um, the other thing that you can do with a sandbox time travel game that I think is probably important is to set a baseline of technology because it will rapidly become fun with nanotech if you don't already say unfortunately uh because of time travel anything invented after 2050 is screwed up by going through time it messes with those quantum computers it screws up nanotech it messes your uh, quantum dipole entanglement devices so no teleporters no nanotech no super duper uh, problem solving gases. It's just good old, um, uh, maybe you get a stunner or a needle, uh, gun with a, with a, uh, a knockout drug in it. But basically, no, there's no super tech because then the trouble is that the fun of presenting yourself with the problem in the Roman Empire is that it's a problem that actually imperils or excites you. Whereas if you can solve it with, um, uh, just, oh, I just send the nanoprobes out to turn all the Gauls, uh, to sleepy Gauls. I'm, I'm my, you know, my mission was solved and, and we're done. And then that ruins everything. I, I take that one step further even and say that taking technology back in time, you know, do the, to the quantumizer effect translates it to its native tech level. So you take a, uh, 
rifle back to uh, the Renaissance and it becomes a, a, um, a musket. Uh, you take uh, that same rifle uh, back to uh, the Roman Empire and guess what? You've got a, a spear on your hands. And so uh, that's, it, it's the factory setting for the time machine. And, uh, you know, you've got a time machine, but I, I think that you're missing a step, first of all, if the characters know where their time machine came from. Uh, and uh, if you have them all from different timelines, uh, you know, part of part of session zero is, well, you're all together in a room and you have a time machine. How did that happen? Uh, given that you don't know where the time machine actually comes from. So that you could maybe have as an ongoing arc, the guys who lost the time machine hunting you. Exactly. Because uh, for any sandbox game in the back pocket of the GM, if the, if the players just keep it all exciting, just following their own goals that they make up every week and, uh, you know, say to you at the end of the session, well, we want to go poke around in the uh, golden age of piracy. And then you go off and hit Wikipedia and have enough info to run that uh, session the next time around. That's great. That all keeps being exciting. But the thing about sandbox games is that they don't always gel. Uh, and uh, particularly if the uh, if you have player uh, attendance issues and you have a big rotating group of players, you might want in your back pocket an arc to uh, lay on them if the if if one does not emerge during play. And uh, having the guys who own that time machine come back to get it back uh, is a is a pretty good default arc because it can happen uh, in any timeline. It's not tied to uh, a particular setting that they have to keep uh, returning to. And the other uh, thing that you can have uh, is other recurring bad guys. Uh, the you know the cruel empire of San Chan that sends its uh, psionic agents back in time, like the Great Race of Yith do. Or you could have the Hounds of Tyndalos that you know pop out whenever there's too much. Uh, distress done to history. And that's what keeps history from changing is the hounds of Tyndale show up and eat you. Um, uh, there was a comic book called Aztec Ace that had a good bit that if you messed with history too much, weird crap out of that history would attack you. So if you were in ancient Greece and trying to change history, you'd be eaten by a chimera. And if you were in uh, Napoleonic France and trying to change history, uh, a little automaton soldiers would come and shoot you because they were made out of the sort of antibodies of that historical era. And um, uh, they would be like, oh, we sense danger. Let's go kill it. And uh, then the antibodies would go away, one hopes, or be have to be killed by a hero and meld back into the sort of fictive uh, uh, potential nature of the world, which is where fiction came from. That was kind of a fun uh, high concept. Uh, you can usually have recurring villains. Obviously, that's how Doctor Who does it. There's generally not uh, an arc, or if there is, it's a dumb one. But, uh, you know, Doctor Who's got the anti-time machine with the Master, and he's got the Daleks and uh, Zantarans and people that just sort of show up all over the place and are bad. So that would be your, your guys from Nazi world or your guys from hated British world or whatever, um, uh, trying to mess with time and make things different. Another thing that a sandbox game generally does in my experience is uh as i say you can dig anywhere in a sandbox but the gm has buried uh plastic dinosaurs some places and that's where you're going to dig more and have more fun with and make up your own stories and once the players begin to derive story once story emerges then it's your job as a sandbox gm in any genre to feed it and it's much easier to feed it in a time travel game because it can literally be any when that is 
um, uh, behind the mysterious murders or uh, trying to keep these two lovers apart or doing whatever it is or collecting their own uh, infinite time library. And they're just, you know, the rival uh, time bookhounds to your player character time bookhounds. And if you're going after just works of plastic art, they don't care. But if you're going after a book, the time bookhounds will mess you up. And it turns out they work for Borges Library of Babel or something. And so it's impossible to sort of beard them in their den because their den is ontologically um, uh, immune. But you can maybe stop them out in the field and then figuring out how to, you know, quantum seal off the Library of Babel may be your mission to turn it into the actual Library of Babel as depicted by Borges that touches nothing. Uh, One thing that you can do if the uh, players are assembling an economic empire, if they're going uh, and getting a thing in one time and then selling it another or establishing a triangular trading route between uh, periods, is you could introduce the idea of a tragedy of the commons, that you have the numero uno most powerful uh, time machine, the one that, that actually can establish a connection between uh, this time and that other time, but that once you've done that, uh, cheaper, more commonly available time conveyances can then take advantage of the route that you've established to then jump in and keep going there. So that the first time you go to Rome, you're the only people there. And the next time you go to Rome, the uh, the insect men have started to covertly show up and they're starting to, you know, leech the place of all of its gold and treasure and, and they're stripping it bare. And then the next time you get back, there's, you know, an all all on trading station and they're starting to muck things up and that uh, that essentially uh, the resources of each time frame are stripped uh, by your uh, alien uh, competitors or just uh, other regular people uh, because you've established that route. So you have to be really careful about, you know, where are we going to land and are we going to make it easy for everybody to go and uh, uh, take all the good stuff out of uh, out of Athens or are we going to, uh, you know, cover our tracks more because uh, there's only a finite number of times we can go back to Athens before everything just becomes a, a stupid old flea market. <laughs> the nutmeg problem, as I call it, uh, from a, a misguided uh, pirate game that I ran once, is a real problem. And I think probably in a time travel game, the way to solve it is just to never really care if the players are rich or the player characters are rich. So if the player characters want to have a zillion dollars from compound interest or from nutmeg trafficking or whatever, just say, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. doesn't matter um, because none of the problems are necessarily solved or not solved by being rich. Um, and if they're, you know, start leaning on it and making it a big thing, then you can introduce um, uh, alternate historical depressions or inflation or uh, rapacious tax authorities or insect man or whatever it is that you want to do. But by and large, um, the more you make the player characters care about money in time travel, the more annoying the game is going to be for you because they're going to turn it into a game of obviously cross time accounting. And that is uh, even less fun than it sounds like. Trust me. Uh, well, uh, the one thing about time is that it is finite, at least on this particular uh, time conveyance. So it's time for us to get in our machine and head through this ad, not to another time, well, actually to another time uh, and another hut.
There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pulgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In, in Cthulhu, Cthulhu City. The sizzle of fish sauce, the unmistakable aroma of a uh, sow's womb, tell us we've once more stepped into the uh, delicious and, uh, well, delicious might be a question this time around, uh, confines of the Food Hut, because Patreon backer Peter Williamson asks, does the Food Hut contain a copy of Apicius? Apicius, of course, is uh, the uh, standard uh, Roman cookbook, or at least standard among the the ultra-elite from Maybe the first century, maybe the third century, we're not totally clear. But it was named after a guy named Apicius, Marcus Gavius Apicius, who might even have existed, although some sources uh, call this into doubt. Uh, but uh, this is, uh, if you look at its table of contents, it's it's a cookbook, even though it was uh, hand-scribed uh, by slaves and sold one copy at a time to the ultra-rich. So Ken... Have you uh, boiled an ostrich lately or uh, uh, tasted the uh, a flamingo tongue or, or, or eaten the comb off a live rooster? I have done none of those things. For whatever reason, uh, the ostrich that you get in Chicago is, is a little dubious, I it's, think. It's hard to source gazelle right. these yeah. days. And um, uh, dormice, quite frankly, if I tried to serve dormice, Virgil would eat them. So I can't. Right, because they, you would have the little ceramic thing that mm-hmm. you trap your dormouse in and feed him uh, delicious grains and stuff. But I'm pretty sure Virgil would uh, would get into that. Yeah, he would get right into that dormouse uh, hut, and uh, trouble would ensue. So the thing that uh, you and I have in common with Apicius is we both like the fish sauce. Um, uh, the Romans called it garum. Uh, we call it uh, mock duam, but it's basically the same thing. It's fermented fish that has been rendered down into uh, nothing but pure odor and flavor. Yeah. Now, the way I originally learned this back uh, back when I was a, a young sprout was that we can't possibly know what was in garum or how to make garum. It's the big controversy of food history. We'll, ne- we'll never know. And today's food historians will say exactly what you did just now, which is, that's eh, nampla. Just, just yeah. get some Vietnamese fish sauce and put that in. And I think that's true. And I think that the original story was basically promulgated by high school Latin teachers so that they would not have to prepare uh, Roman food <laughs> as, as part of their Latin-themed activities. And I think that there may have been, you know, just a fact that, you know, English speakers didn't have a lot of familiarity with uh, Southeast Asian cooking. Maybe the French Latin teachers were all like, uh, Garum, it is what we serve in the coach in China. Uh, and it is called the fish sauce there. It's the same thing. 
Shut up. Right. Uh, so uh, what we're talking about here is the uh, food for the ultra, ultra rich and uh, perhaps even the nouveau riche, the uh, very status con- conscious rich who are trying to uh, impress one another uh, with phenomenal feasts. There is some more kind of regular food in, in Apicius, but the, the main thrust is these uh, crazy meals. So, and the, the meals listed in here are referred to in other places. Uh, Petronius in the Satyricon uh, mentions many of the same outlandish dishes, and Juvenal describes them as well. And in both of those cases, they're being painted in a negative light, as sort of um, gross food served by gross people for uh, gross purposes. But this cookbook is designed for people who actually want to make this stuff, or I don't know, aspire to make this stuff. Uh, buying a book was a big deal in Rome, as I alluded to mm-hmm. earlier. They were all, of course, handmade. There's no copyright in Roman publishing, so anybody can publish a copy of uh, whatever book, and that uh, raises the question of who originally assembled this, uh, whether uh, it was just a number of disparate recipes uh, put together and uh, the publishers didn't care uh, that they were copying from one another because hey, a book is expensive and just uh, selling a book is fine. Um, and so the, the question of how uh, aspirational uh, Apicius was to the people who were buying that book is, is interesting because even today, there are all sorts of cookbooks with beautiful color photos and all this lifestyle detail behind them. And if you look at the recipes, you go, I'm never going to make that. That's, <laughs> you know, 28 different ingredients and you're supposed to prepare it for eight hours, you know, but obviously people, uh, there are lots of people who, uh, just as there are people who read role-playing uh, books and never get to play, there are lots of people who read cookbooks and feel a vicarious sense of delight from them, but do not, in fact, uh, wind up making them. And so uh, the question of how many people actually did boil an ostrich uh, is, is an interesting one. If you did go on to boil an ostrich, one of the characteristics of a lot of these dishes is that uh, there's no such thing of we're, uh, we're just going to pick one or two complementary flavors, right? The boiled ostrich has uh, sweet and sour and umami in the form of uh, garum and uh, salty, of course. And uh, whatever the fifth one I left out, that's in there, too. Uh, bitter. Bitter. There we go. Because it has um, uh, leeks in it and uh, pepper, which was probably uh, stronger than we have it now because they had to get it from India and they couldn't uh, just let it sit around the way that we can. Right. And so this is from the, the period of the High Empire, uh, when you have your uh, the, the Republic with its uh, austere eating, its... Uh, it's porridges and it's uh, pancakes with uh, with honey and cheese. That's uh, probably still how most people eat. But these uh, people who are eating this stuff in Apicius are the ones with the money uh, to get, uh, you know, pepper from India and, uh, you know, lemons from uh, the Middle East and, and so forth. So that they're sourcing and gazelle from Africa. So they are. And suddenly there's a lot of uh, meat in the diet, which, again, was not a, a main thing of the of the Republic. Uh, well, lemons, now, at least you could get from Sicily. Um, right. Lemons grow in Sicily all back to the ancient times. So sure. that's not as terrible. But the pepper, every time you see pepper in here, pretend that what that is is saffron. You know, if you're an American cook the, and think, oh, my God, that's a lot of saffron. I would go bankrupt cooking these this food. Same thing. Um, the, the other thing that you've got uh, going on is that 
a lot of it is sauces. It's it, tons and tons and tons of her sauces. And the sauces are usually added to a boiled animal. If you're making the meat dishes, a lot of them are boiled or parboiled. Very few of them are what we would call braised, although some of that might just be translation. Um, and that probably goes to the fact that uh, cookware would also be super expensive because you're not in a time where you have gigantic mechanized iron mines pulling things out, uh, or giant mechanized copper mines making your copper pots for your fancier chefs. The, the cookware here is going to be mostly, uh, big pots, uh, that you, uh, have that you boil things in or that you cook things in. Uh, you can roast stuff in an oven. You see roasts a good deal, but you don't see a lot of, uh, material that is basically fried or that is, uh, uh, boiled. Every so often, uh, you'll see the recipe for chicken and cream sauce says, take a little water and plenty of Spanish oil, stir, cook together. And that could be a braising, but we don't know because, uh, the, whoever was writing Apicius was usually writing in a hurry and was writing for other cooks. They weren't going to go through all the details. There's no amounts, for example, in the recipes. So you don't know, is it a lot of pepper or a little bit of pepper? Is it a lot of cumin or a little bit of cumin? And if you've ever cooked with cumin or pepper, you know that that kind of makes a difference. Right. And it is your uh, servants who are probably slaves who are illiterate and can't read the cookbook that you then have to go read them the cookbook and you read them the ingredients and they have to go, okay, if you're, if you're rich enough to have a book like this, you're rich enough to have a literate slave, usually a Greek who runs your library. So your librarian is the guy who probably goes down to the kitchen and reads the recipe to the slaves. Right. And then they go, okay, well, obviously you would, this is the amount of pepper that you would put in and and so forth. And, and so the table of contents for a is it's a very recognizable, cookbook which goes by you know types of ingredients so the first chapter is the sort of the grounding the you know how you uh run your kitchen so that's the called the the careful housekeeper the second uh section is uh, all about uh, minced meat about ground beef then you get to uh, gardening and vegetables so even the romans were tricking vegetables into being delicious uh you get to pandector which is miscellaneous so i guess you put that in the middle of the book Osprion is uh, pulses and legumes, and then you move on to uh, birds and poultry, and uh, the gourmet, I guess, is where the super crazy things are. Um, and then you get your quad, how to cook quadrupeds, and uh, then, uh, of course, uh, seafood, which was a huge part of the Roman diet. And then, uh, I guess, there's uh, the fishermen, and presumably is about sourcing seafood, I would guess. Yeah, the politiles, the the gourmet is not just your sow's belly and your uh, fig-fed pork and such, but it's also things that we don't immediately think of as specialties, like roasts. <laughs> so again, you don't, most places don't have a roasting uh, oven, and so making a roast is a big deal. There's uh, things for uh, mushrooms, uh, which are special, and you have to go out of your way to find them. And egg, egg recipes are in the, the gourmet, uh, probably because... Uh, spare eggs for making special things with was not a big deal. Um, or that there were so many, uh, or that uh, if you had eggs, you would make common eggs and you would just sort of, you know, shake them up and boil them and then you're done and you have a boiled egg. That was special enough. You didn't need that to guess was special enough. You need to need to add a bunch of garum and, uh, and such. Now the, the really alien thing, uh, even more so than some of the outlandish uh, foods that juvenile and, and uh, Petronius make fun of is to us, the really weird thing is the the arrangements for eating, because you wouldn't be sitting at a table 
your you and your guests would be lying down on what were called couches, but are really sort of more elevated cots, and you would. Uh, I guess lo- recline on your side because I can't imagine you lying on your back and eating and you would be three to a couch so that the the diners uh, with the highest status, including the host, would be on the inner ring of this sort of uh, U-shaped arrangement of three couches and then there would be someone lying right behind you and someone lying right behind them as well. So that's a level of intimacy during uh, eating, especially since most of the eating was done with the hands, then uh, I would be prepared to to go through. And this is when I would give myself away as a time traveler, uh, not just uh, because I seemed a little queasy when they uh, brought around the uh, the rooster testicles, but the uh, the intimacy of dining three to a couch, lying down, uh, would be a little, little too much spooning for me. And then if all you get is boiled ostrich, that may not be what you really wanted. Exactly. So uh, that's Apicius for you. And uh, having, uh, I'm feeling a little queasy. I haven't even, uh, you know, touched the rest of my comb from a still living rooster. So I think it's time that we uh, took a little break and then reconvened at another hop. of lugging around massive backpacks full of game books? Lighten your step with the Keyring RPG. Now kickstarting from Ask Fagelm. Translated into English, not Swedish. It's 7 by 3 by 2 centimeters of gaming fun. So not translated into Imperial, then. Small enough to fit on the titular keyring. Featuring a procedural adventure building system. A full, highly flexible rule set. Cards for missions, locations, obstacles, rewards, and motivations. And, of course, character sheets. Your game collection is not complete without the smallest game you'll own. Need we go on? Nope. A tiny game needs a tiny commercial. Go to Kickstarter and search Keyring RPG. Or follow the tiny link in the show notes. Go places and be people alongside such peripatetic Patreon backers as Andrew Dacey, Stephen Brandon, Richard Ruane, Drew Clowry, and Gareth Ryder Anrahan. The carefully plotted ROM lines, the compass rose in the corner, the extended forehead on Greenland tell us we've once more entered the cartography hut, that most uh, stark yet playful of huts. And here, Patreon backer Zachary Joyner invites us to our hut and asks us, can you guys give us the 101 on telling stories with places? Uh, Robin, uh, how about you give Zachary Joyner the one-on-one on telling stories with places? And since we're in the cartography hut, I assume that he means the emergent stories that come from maps, but feel free to correct me there. Right. Uh, so this was, this was phrased as a cartography question. And so it's an interesting question about uh, how do you tell stories with places? Because uh, traditionally, uh, we think of narratives as being driven by characters. So the idea that uh, just going and uh, describing a group of uh, places seems uh, somewhat inert. So first of all, as a 101 reading assignment, 
I would point you to uh, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, which mm-hmm. is just a set of vignettes that describe uh, various uh, imaginary cities, as, as uh, putatively described by Marco Polo, along a number of different themes. And so that's a rare instance of a uh, work of fiction that is just about places, which is nonetheless uh, fascinating because uh, Calvino's uh, sense of detail and his ability to uh, imagine these invisible cities is sufficiently compelling to draw you through. It's also, one must say, a slim novel. Uh, very short, yes. Yes. Um, and you can you can look at where Calvino was sort of taking his sources uh, by reading a really good or better yet really ornate translation of Marco Polo or of uh, John de Mandeville, both of whom were very adept at uh, telling stories with places um, in the sort of over here is the land of the Griffins and down here is a king who only comes out by night or whatever. And again, they're not uh, what we think of as developed fiction. They're picaresque almost to the, uh, uh, to the extreme, but they do provide a way for a setting to drive and even create in your mind a story because your story is what if I were trapped in that land or what if I got to go to the mountain of Griffins? That'd be fun. Right. So if we're talking about a a role-playing situation, you need a group of players uh, where almost every member of the group is the explorer player, the player who just wants to sort of tool around in an imaginary environment and interact with things and talk to the guy who sells the swords and buy a sword from him and then go over here to look at the buildings uh, and is content to just have uh, that level of detail. And basically you are then creating an imaginary travelogue for the characters to uh, journey through. Um, If you want to take that up a notch, uh, we're starting to talk about the journey, the, you know, in contemporary terms, the road movie where your characters are going from place to place. There is an idea that there is something incomplete about them that has them on their, uh, just sort of rambling around from place to place. It's not that they are, you know, trying to get back home to meet the wife they left behind uh, when they went off to war uh, 10 years ago, but they're, you know, they're searching for what they don't know, for what they will know when they find it, so that you uh, have an existential journey and uh, there's uh, something along the way that defines uh, something about them. And so you might encourage the uh, players of the of the characters to establish you know, what are you going to to take away from this place? Or what did you leave behind in this place? And so the question is, how did being in this location that you've described that has its quirks, that has some sort of uh, conflict or interesting thing that uh, they have to intersect with to make it exciting, and uh, then what does that tell us about you now that you've been there so that it's less an aimless ramble through a bunch of disjointed places Uh, than a personal journey that has brought some sort of transformation in you by stages with each new place you visit. Yeah, the um, notion that that this sort of thing is a travel narrative is is one of the ways to do it. The other way, of course, is to present a place that is in its own way a character in your story and that sort of takes over the story if you let it. And that can be as simple as setting your story. I mean, the classic example there is the shadow over Innsmouth, where Innsmouth by far is the, is the most realistic character in the, not in the, in the story. Uh, Olmstead is, is not even named. He's such 
a cipher, and uh, Zadok Allen and some of the other characters exist only to be mouth pieces or claw pieces uh, for the, the town of Innsmouth. And you can see that again in uh, the comic book Mr. X by Dean Motter, which is about a city that is itself um, uh, cruel and ill and is taking that out on the people who live there. Um, Fell is a, is a, another comic book in that same Batman's Gotham City and the better ones are like that. And of course, a, a novel that is full of uh, the sense of place uh, set in somewhere like New Orleans or London or Chicago will often have the city itself come alive and become a character. And you see that in any number of uh, works of fiction. You see it even more often in film where the visuals of the city uh, can actually drive story, but something like a uh, dark city, the, the Alex Proyas movie. And of course our own Gareth Hanrahan's Cthulhu city, which is literally about a place that tells a story. And the story is uh, your Nick, mate can provide you with a similar sort of uh of approach to that and the way right. to do and that are all places that are so large and capacious that they have many other places within them right so that you uh can spend as much time exploring them as you would uh spend uh you know heading down route 66 or uh you know going into an uncharted continent yeah and the and the thing that becomes uh sort of the common narrative or the common thread is that wherever you go in the city you're still in that city and still subject to its to its forces and so that even if you're in you know the the little church down on the lane uh where there's nothing but a good uh, pastor who helps people but the fact that he has to strive against the the hateful sin city outside still defines his character in a way that it wouldn't if he was in you know Winesburg Ohio or wherever right and so uh, the key is to find places that have emotional resonance that aren't uh, just like, here's a list of the architectural features and here's, you know, the, the kind of hats people wear, but here's uh, what you are going to feel about this place, that it, it interacts uh, with uh, emotion and ideas about who we are and where we choose to live and how where we live changes us that then provide the, the meaning that, that make up the through line of your story, that give you your theme. And so uh, the question that you're examining in one way or other is that, you know, why do people in this uh, country or neighborhood act in this way and think in this way, whereas people over here in this other neighborhood or country or, or what have you are, are, are different than that? And so you're looking for a way to bring about a, a study in contrast so that, uh, and in a, a city-based uh, place story in particular, you're talking about the social structure, probably a class structure from the from the underclass to the to the very rich. And so the uh, characters who would navigate particularly a city-based uh, geographical uh, narrative would have to have a sort of detachment from uh, all of these different societies enough to travel between them, because the uh, you know, the, the wretched uh, rat catcher is not going to get to uh, meet the aristocrats because the whole system is designed to prevent that from ever possibly right. happening so that you, your characters, you know, your visitors from outside or your uh, working on a, a survey for the king or what have you. There's some uh, reason that explains why the characters are uh, on one hand outside all of these places enough that they uh, can interact with people anywhere, but inside them enough that uh, they can achieve an accessible uh, 
meaningful contact with the with the people in it. So, and again, there's there's there are examples of even in in historical cities of social classes that exist to do that. I mean, the classic example is cops, right? Uh, whether it's Columbo or Law and Order, the cop has to touch all layers of society because he's defending, in theory, uh, the city from threats from all layers of society. Another example is actors in Shakespearean times. They were basically seen as little better than prostitutes and pickpockets, but they got to hang out with rich people because that's who paid for plays. So there was any number of professions that, while they were not themselves respectable, were allowed into respectable company, certainly, uh, and maybe especially during disreputable times. So you might have a courtesan or another member of the demi-mondaine who is ab- available to the rich, but basically dwells amongst the gutter and has contacts in every stratum of society. And that's the sort of person that your player characters might be playing is that sort of edgy uh, outsider type uh, character, which also of course turns out to be ideal role-playing fodder because player care your players are not going to be from uh victorian england uh, victorian london or shakespearean london or 17th century paris or whatever social world you're trying to paint they are going to be outsiders and so that having them play sort of shifty people who if they make a social misstep it's just written down to them being them is is a is a positive boon in in gameplay yes if adventurer is a profession the way it is in uh f20 games you have the same social status, probably, mostly for you at least, as actors. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, uh, the poor people down by the docks will band together to, uh, put their money together to, uh, hire you to get rid of the octopi who are, uh, picking off people at night. Or the, uh, cleric in the group, of course, that's your obligation to, uh, you know, occasionally uh, assist the poor. And how do D&D characters assist the poor? By killing monsters. And giving them all the copper pieces they find. Right. Or, you know, you could have a premise where a group of adventurers, by definition, has to transcend social classes, right? That you, you know, the warrior with all the expensive equipment, well, obviously, he's a a noble scion, uh, perhaps a, a second or third brother that they're trying to find a way to to get rid of for for a while, and uh, you know you got to preserve the air. But the secondary ones, uh, you know, instead of going off into the priesthood, they uh, set you up as a cavalier or, or what have you. And then you know the uh, the resident group thief. Of course, you come from the from the underclass, and so it might be that uh, in the group of adventurers is where uh, enough people meet that each of you in the uh, group have a place within the city, within the society that you know. And that uh, as you move through these, uh, the, the the person who becomes the face character, the one who interacts with people, the one who asks questions, the uh, is the one who grew up in that neighborhood. And that uh, you are, the as adventurers, you're the only people who uh, belong to a group of people who have a loyalty to each other that transcends uh, class and sect and uh, whatever other barriers there are between people in this city. And then finally, uh, to sort of bring it back around to the cartography, uh, one of the things that you can do as an exercise in your, in your gaming life or whatever is if you've run across a fantasy map or a map of a area that you don't think the players know, uh, very well, uh, a time period perhaps, uh, show them the map. Even if it's, you're not planning to run it, show them the map and see what they, how they respond. And you may learn that your players are more touristy than you thought they were, or that they have a real yen to go to the caves of utter despair on the, on the edge of the map and, or, or go fight the griffins. And 
that are drawn on the on the mountaintops, and that can provide you with the sort of uh, creative flash that uh, is not story either, but is uh, revealed character or revealed uh, desire, and that of course drives story. Both of those things. So. Um, if you've got, uh, I'm not necessarily one of those people who says, draw your map before you do the game. Um, there is an excellent argument that in a fantasy world, especially you should not do that, that the player characters should sort of build out their understanding of the world bit by bit and should never, uh, know except in wild rumor what's over the next ridge. But if you've got one of those settings that already has the big map, um, lay it down there. Um, if, if it's Middle Earth, players may already have a notion that they want to go see what's in Umbar or they want to go up to Angmar and see what the Witch King left behind. But if it's some other fantasy realm or some, you know, completely unknown period of history to them, you know, map of 13th century Cambodia, that may spark some, some genuine response in a sort of a surrealist or, um, uh, or Jungian, uh, type, uh, stimulus and response, uh, setting. So think about that as a way to not, uh, tell story but to draw out story uh with a map well i know what's on the other side of the next ridge uh and the ridge in this uh analogy is a uh, another exciting commercial message and the thing on the other side well let's just go to the other side and see When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once again for that most ill-defined of huts, the, the hut that doesn't even really usually have walls, has more sort of a, sort of a foggy semantic definitional uh, quasi-flux, but we know there's a table over there, and there's the Nordic alien having tea with the gray alien. We know out the window there's an alien big cat screaming on the moor, but this time the Elliptony hut is really full of people. Uh, it looks like basically kind of a uh, somebody went to the uh, video store and referenced uh, the party sequences in Eyes Wide Shut, uh, but it also kind of smells like chalupas. Uh, because <laughs> Patreon backer David Soa asks, how do you guys feel about a Liptony seeping into the mainstream in the form of Taco Bell's new Balluminati ad campaign? And of course, in our crazy new modern days, uh, we can uh, talk uh, safely about an ad campaign that may only be playing in part of the world because you just go over to the YouTube and when you do that and you type in Balluminati, you see that the Taco Bell chain, that is the uh, chain that aims itself at uh, uh, hungry students and other people on a budget, has 
and add in the whole theme of this ad is that some of their offerings are a mere dollar a piece and uh, and taste like it and uh, well okay that, that's that's implicit that's, that's, that's a, implicit su- that's a subtext where, robin yeah, you're reading the subtext again that's where they if, reveal that it's taco bell right but so these commercials uh do seem like there is there's a, a bit of a eyes wide shut going on and there's uh, uh lots of uh flashes to the dollar bill which of course is what uh, calls it in there calls in the theme and uh indications that there's some Secret Illuminati code on the dollar bill, which of course is long-standing conspiracy tradition, uh, which will remind you then that uh, good old George Washington wants you to head on down uh, to Taco Bell for some uh, very inexpensive uh, faux Mexican food. Uh, so, Ken, how do we feel about elliptony and conspiracy becoming so mainstream that they can be a, a winking in-joke to a new generation of famished students and hipsters. By and large, I like it because if it's a winking in joke, it becomes harder to get people head up about it. If your first exposure to the Illuminati is someone who's very worried about the Illuminati and how they control all the banks and how this and that, and the other thing, you're going to waste your time in unproductive behavior at best. Um, if your first exposure to the Illuminati is an extended bit, uh, as in, for example, the Illuminatus Chronicles by Shea and Wilson, or in this case, a pretty hilarious Taco Bell ad, then you'll be insulated because when someone brings up the Illuminati as a serious thing you should be worried about, you're like, uh, yeah, okay, crazy person. I'll put that on my agenda right after I enjoy a delicious Taco Bell stacker with my dollar menu. Um, the, uh, the ads themselves are very clever. As you mentioned, they're by the firm Deutsch. Uh, to give them their shout out. Uh, and they are great fun. They are very much someone who is woke to the old school Shea Wilson Illuminatus nonsense and then was given an ad budget and yeah. was able to <laughs> mess around with it. And there's all manner of, of great nods to it. And I won't spoil the fun for people who want to go uh, YouTube it up uh, and find out. I, I like the tagline is uh, the Belluminati uh, open to anyone with a dollar or is it a secret society of the elite? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I just thought that was, that was darn fun and, and very clever. And also, if there's anything more American than being panicked about the damn Illuminati, it's using the damn Illuminati to make a dollar. So who am I to say Taco Bell is doing it wrong when literally that's what we've been doing with the Illuminati since the time of the heroic George Washington, who either in worry or in uh, pained good humor responded to a correspondent who was tasking him for not mentioning the Illuminati enough with no one is more worried about the Illuminati with better reason than I am. Uh, <laughs> I take that as George rolling his uh, George Washington eyes, but you know, you never can tell. Um, maybe as a Freemason, he was just worried that they were a bunch of middle-class people getting in on his act. But either way, uh, the connection between George and the Illuminati is, is uh, long played out in song and story. And it's a pretty clever idea from Deutsch or from Taco Bell to uh, run that riff just a little bit further and urge you to enjoy a tasty enchirito or whatever the hell it is that one enjoys for a dollar at Taco Bell. And I use the word enjoy in condign form, as you well know, right, Robin, right. so don't make fun of um, me. And so... The uh, the consequence, as you suggest, of uh, now that conspiracy theory has gone mainstream and rockets around the globe with the uh, speed of uh, people in St. Petersburg uh, clicking new hashtags into Twitter, uh, it is good to see uh, this is almost sort of an antibody uh, presenting itself in the system of 
sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, skepticism and awareness, and, and that's always good. But, of course, listeners to the show uh, will want us to make some stuff up. And so, <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> and so, in an imaginary uh, world, in a, a modern-day conspiracy game, uh, when the Illuminati ad campaign comes up, there's has to be more to it than just uh, somebody with uh, hipper-than-usual cultural references getting to play with the Taco Bell uh, ad money. Uh, there's got to be some uh, deeper meaning behind that. Uh, so, obviously, the clear indication there is that the Illuminati must be uh, inoculating us against belief in their existence, because the problem, as an actual global conspiracy, you do not want to have gone mainstream. No. That's, that's bad news. You don't want people going around trying your secret knock. Exactly. And uh, you don't want them, if you've got a code on the dollar bill, well, you know, changing things at the National Mint and changing the code and getting everybody to see the new code, it's, it's very inconvenient. So you want people to disbelieve in your existence. So uh, as we've seen uh, in, in the realm of politics, the uh, best way to get people to think that something unthinkable isn't happening is to just do it openly. So let's uh, set up our, our Illuminati ad campaign and just uh, if all of the uh, the uh, college students with their uh, their dollar flotas are walking around uh, thinking that it's all a big joke, then you can uh, operate under a new uh, level of secrecy. It may even be that you're going, okay, guys, um, the whole Illuminati gaff that's blown. Uh, we're going to put that out there. It's just a joke now. It's just a thing on Taco Bell. And by the way, we're getting two cents uh, per chalupa, so that's good. That's going back into the budget. Uh, but uh, stay tuned, the secret code says, for our new symbology. Uh, we're changing the name. We're not going to be the Illuminati anymore. We're going to give up the pyramid stuff. So stay tuned. Uh, stay stay aware because you're going to get the Illuminati uh, 2.0 uh, uh, coming at you now that we've abandoned all of this other iconography is being uh, overexposed. And this is where your um, uh, really woke conspiracy dudes, and it's always dudes, uh, with the exception, of course, of poor Nesta Webster. Um, it's always right, dudes. W women don't need to think up people who are dangerous to them. <laughs> they, they just have to look around the room. And uh, if there's uh, if there's men in the room, one of them is dangerous, if not more than one. Member of a secret society of jerks. Um, and it's not secret, nor is it a society. Anyway, the really woke conspiracy dudes uh, know all about this and would consider it part of the making manifest all which is hidden or making manifest that which is hidden, which is the activity that the conspiracy engages in as part of the final alchemy, the final changing of the mind. Because conspiracies, the Illuminati works through psychodrama and social alteration, like all great mass movements do. It, it changes society. And in this way, it changes it by uh, enacting a thing that we are meant to first regard as um, a farce or as impossibility and only later recognize as reality. Um, sort of the backwards of, of Marx that um, uh, first is tragedy, then is farce the other way around for the Illuminati because they hate Marx. Anyway, so the, uh, the, the great, 
illusion that uh, our world is controlled by these shadowy forces becomes ever so slowly the great reality that we, it is revealed to us that we have been saddled and spurred and are being ridden around like donkeys by our secret masters. And they do that by means of drama that reveals the Illuminati. They do that by means of um, activity that reveals their themselves, your Bohemian Grove giant naked owl dancing. And they were, and they do it by means of, of sort of cultural alchemy, just changing us to accept this. Uh, it, it may look like a coincidence because they've set it up to look like a ridiculous coincidence that Lincoln has a secretary named Kennedy and Kennedy has a secretary named Lincoln because the Illuminati killed both of them. And that's them signing the work in a way that later when they reveal it, we can say, Oh yeah, we get it. We were always, we were always part of the, part of the, 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 the spectacle. Uh, we, we surrender to you Illuminati. So that's, um, uh, the same sort of thing, uh, happens, um, in, to an extent with Jung, the notion of the, of the archetype that becomes true, the more you believe it, or George Sorrell's mass myth that, uh, the more you believe in the power of the general strike, the more a general strike can happen. So it's not exclusive to Illuminati or Illuminatists to think that that's the way that a uh, mind or society works. Um, and so you would argue in the world of uh, the, uh, the Illuminati, the illuminated world that a Belluminati campaign is not so much a clever strike back against the Illuminati by those, uh, merry pranksters at Deutsch. You might say the Deutsch are the Discordians in that, in that framework, but actually what they are is just another glove on the hand of the Illuminati octopus that sits there and manipulates everybody. Right. Well, I think it's unmistakable when you look at the iconography here to see the target of this working, right? That this is an, an incantation uh, being uh, delivered uh, into the heart of the uh, American uh, bloodstream through YouTube and commercial television and through uh, literally into people's bloodstreams through the uh, enchiladas they'll be eating. And clearly, if we see uh, Mexican food teaming up with George Washington, George Washington, of course, notoriously is the president who was opposed to unlimited presidential power, who served as president because he did not want presidents to be king. Well, if we're looking at uh, an organization that is uh, powered by the spirit of Mexico and powered by the spirit of uh, limited uh, presidential power, of course, we know that this is aimed at the current administration, which uh, if you are an Illuminati, I think that you probably resent the amateurish invocation of conspiracy theory by uh, people who are not very good at it and uh, keep own goaling themselves, uh, people who whose uh, exculpatory memos are incriminating. That's no good uh, if you're an Illuminati. So uh, if we see the, uh, the current administration come a cropper, uh, you can uh, trace it all back to this, uh, to this great working. And uh, you've got to have a great sacrifice in order to power magic. And the sacrifice involved in paying for a massive multimedia ad campaign uh, is better than uh, any old crop of virgins any day. And also, uh, you get a delicious uh, chalupa stackers. Exactly. So it's it's a win win really for them. Yes, you you get you get your stackers, and uh, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, life is weird. Uh, we're all rooting for the uh, for the Illuminati and and possibly the return of that Chihuahua. Yeah. Who can say that perhaps when the mask is revealed at the end, the reason that the secret masters uh, didn't talk is they were a little dog because. In the Illuminati, like on the internet, no one knows if you're a dog. Uh, and on that note, which I have to characterize as concluding, we conclude this episode. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Ron Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Come out of your taco shell alongside such backers as... Anderson Todd. Jacob True. Mark Galliotti. Anders Moline. And Terry Eubanks. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Designs include... This bicycle does not make toast. And nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.